On this week's Motos and Friends, we explore the theme of travel and touring. Our moto is Honda's NC750X, a super user-friendly and incredibly versatile middleweight that won't break the bank. Interestingly, with the addition of Honda's luggage system, the NC750X has a downright amazing amount of carrying capacity. The bike comes in both standard shift and DCT flavors, and Don Williams gives us his thoughts on the DCT, that dual-clutch transmission, version. Our chat this week comes from longtime friend Neil Bailey. Neil and I have been fellow moto journalists for uh, approaching two decades, generally roaring around the globe, testing the latest and greatest. All very cool and all that. But for those of you who have not heard of Neil, nor did you catch his TV show, Neil Bailey Rides, on either Speed when it was around or on YouTube now, then you'll find this conversation quite interesting, I think. For those of you that have heard of this philanthropic adventurer, you'll hear the genesis behind Neil's true passion in life, raising money for his Wellspring Foundation. It's a charity based around motorcycling that raises money for both his original orphanage in Peru and subsequently for another one in Africa. If the mood takes you, you can contact Neil in one of several different ways and he'd love to hear from you. If you feel like taking a Neil Bailey ride or you just want to feed your soul a little and simply donate to Wellspring, then please check out the links in our show notes. I really hope you enjoy this episode and the heartwarming tale as related by a fellow journalist nutter. Well, we have the 2021 Honda NC750X. And although the name hasn't changed, Honda did quite a bit to this unusual motorcycle for the latest version of it. Interesting. What, what, what category does it fall into? Well, that's a good question. <laughs> The NC always stood for new concept, and being a new concept bike, it didn't fit into the old concepts. But basically, they, it was kind of a, a hybrid of a touring bike, a urban bike, and supposedly an adventure bike, which, you know, that's a pretty wide range, and you could even call it a sport bike, actually. So it, it was essentially a do-everything bike that also had scooter aspects to it. And the version I'm gonna talk about is the DCT version because that's really the, the more interesting version and the one that uh, we have liked most. Although that may right. change uh, with this new version, we'll see. Right, DCT as in dual clutch transmission. Oh uh, yeah, the fully automatic dual clutch transmission that you can manually shift if you like, or uh, you can let it do all the shifting on its own. And there's no clutch no matter what you do. The clutch is, is automatic 100% of the time. Awesome. Okay. As far as the positioning of the bike, Honda has changed that for 2021. They've totally gotten rid of the adventure part of the bike, which is fine because it was never really an adventure bike. It had a 17-inch front wheel. And for me, if you have a 17-inch front wheel, you're not an adventure bike, no matter what you want to call it. Uh, Kawasaki calls the Versus 650 uh, adventure bike, sort of. <laughs> but again, with a 17-inch front wheel, you're just a street bike. And it has street tires pretty much, although the new tires on the NC750X are a little bit more street oriented, uh, not 100% street. Now they're like 90 or 95% street, but that's, that's close enough. Okay. So right. what they did is uh, they lowered the bike and that's 
part of saying, okay, it's not an adventure bike. We don't need to have long travel suspension and six inches. We don't need the bike to sit up in the air. Nobody's riding adventure on this bike. Right. So they, they kept the basic geometry the same, but they lowered the bike. And by doing that, it makes the bike easier to get on, easier to ride, better for urban riding, better for sport riding, because there's still plenty of cornering clearance. And it's just a better bike all around by getting rid of that pretense of being, well, it's also an adventure bike. And it's not, it never was. And, and also by lowering it, they're, they're you know, opening up the market to other people with shorter inseams. I mean, that, it just sort of makes perfect sense. I think, I mean, I've got long legs and I get sick and tired of trying to get on top of, you know, these big tall bikes. Um, it, it just doesn't seem any point. Yeah, they dropped the seat height over an inch and now it's 31.6 inches. Okay, that's sensible. Yeah, it's not super short, but it's considerably easier to get on. And again, when you're riding around town, you know, it's just easier to get on. It's used to put your feet down at, at you know, when the pavement might be uneven, you're on a hill or something. It's just better in every way. But because the bike does different things, I, uh, let me talk about each thing that it does and, and why it works for each one. And I, I'll start with touring. And because the touring one's kind of an interesting one. Uh, it, the frame is set up so you can add bags. Uh, and a top box and stock with the bike and you think you're looking at the gas tank you're actually looking at a giant cavern uh, that holds 23 liters of cargo stuff which isn't bad uh you know when you're riding around and you want to go to the store throw stuff in there or if you're a tour you're on tour you might have a map in there because you know the bike doesn't have a gps although you could of wow. course always add one if you want or whatever you want to be able to grab right away you could put in in this little compartment that's you know, right between your legs. Uh, but anyway, so you can put the bags on the bike. Now, if you take the uh, uh, NC750X and you add the two side bags that are from Honda, although they're expensive uh, to add, they actually bring the bike within just a couple liters of the capacity of the Goldwing. Wow, wow, that's serious. That, that's awesome. Yeah, it's a little expensive because they want $1,000 for the cases which is about normal but you also have to add a rear carrier for 400 bucks and pannier stays for 220 bucks so now you're looking at over 1600 dollars to add the side bags which is kind of bogus in my opinion but you can also add a top case for a 35 liter top case for what i think is a deal at 106 bucks so all of a sudden if you want to get all three it's not a bad deal and if you take that 35 liter top case, the 23 liter storage compartment between your legs, and the two panniers, which add up to 65 liters, you come up with 123 liters of storage for the NC750X. Now, you can compare that to the Honda Goldwing Tour, which carries 121 liters. Right. So it actually carries more stuff than the Goldwing Tour, you know, the full dresser version. So that's quite impressive in a way this bike could have been called the silver wing and you know honda has worked with that concept before like a junior gold wing maybe for somebody riding solo and really this bike could be it because i would easily i could easily ride this bike from uh coast to coast no problem you might think a 750 is not enough this bike can handle it no problem and also if you want even more storage compartment space instead of getting the uh 
35 liter top case, the bargain one, they have an expensive 50 liter top case that is 426 bucks. But that puts you at 138 liters of storage, which is far above the Honda Goldwing Tour. So if you really want to take it with you, this is the bike to, to take it with you. And it's funny that Honda doesn't really promote that. Maybe they don't want Goldwing owners to get wind of this and go, what? Wait a minute. You know, but it's, it's impressive. And when I talk about riding close to coast, you can cruise at 80 all day on the bike. And it's incredibly non-fatiguing, just like the Goldwing Tour uh, DCTs. You know, the DCT makes a huge difference. Uh, some people can't quite wrap their heads around the DCT. Oh, I got a shift. I got a shift. Well, <laughs> right. okay. If you got a shift, you got a shift. Right. But if you ride the DCT and get used to it, you'll find that, wow, I don't have to shift. And that that's not necessarily an essential part of motorcycle riding. Now, again, it may be for some people. For sure. And I would have thought it was for me. But the way DCT works, it allows you to focus on other aspects of the ride sure. other than, you know, using your hand and using your foot. And as I always say to people, there's been advances all over the years and people complain when they happen. And I'm sure when they first had manual spark advance, somebody said, oh, man, that's part of motorcycle riding. you got to advance that spark yourself. So you set it when you kick it and then you reset it when you're riding. And then as you're going, you set it as you need. That's that's part of riding a motorcycle. And we don't have that anymore. And somehow we still think we're riding motorcycles. And so, you know, and it's, I've had run through this with deal with kickstart. Oh, got to kickstart a bike for it to be a real ride. And I'm like, <laughs> no, I actually can push the button and it's a real ride. So everybody has their own ideas of what is essential to motorcycle riding. And Arthur, I know that yours is you have to be able to lean the bike. Right. And you can lean this bike and you can lean it over quite nicely. And part of that is because they lowered it. Yes. And with a lower bike and the more uh, street-oriented tires, it, it's a really nice sport bike in the canyons. If you're touring across the country and you don't want to just do an inter, you know, interstate 10 from uh, coast to coast and you want to get off on the side roads, bike is incredibly enjoyable. Uh, DCT, again, is, is great. Uh, you put in sport mode and uh, you just you just go. And it almost always is shifting where you want it to be. And if it's not shifting where you want, you know, there's two buttons, a paddle shifting. So you can shift up or shift down when you decide it's time to shift up or shift down. And if you're really trying to go as fast as you can, the paddle shifters, uh, in my feeling, I didn't time it, but I felt like I was going, I could go faster with the paddle shifters than with the, uh, the DCT. But that would grow old in my mind. And if you're touring, you're not racing. And uh, it's great. And in fact, DCT has been upgraded yet again. And, you know, Honda's always working on that. And, and you can tell. I mean, I, I haven't ridden a, a first generation DCT bike in over 10 years now, but I bet if I went and rode that back to back with this bike, boy, the differences would be gigantic. Mainly the big difference is the programming. And the new version, uh, Honda had gotten into this weird thing where they had standard and then they had drive or drive, which was the standard one. And then they had sport. And the sport mode had like three sub modes, like one, two, three. And it was like, what? you know, I, I don't need that one, two, three in sport. It's like, what is this? It just confuses things. The new one has uh, three versions, sport, sport drive, and rain. And we all understand those concepts. And it doesn't take long to figure out, you know, which one is right for you. Uh, obviously, the sport one, the bike shifts much later, lets you go much higher in the rev range, and the bike is now revving higher than the original NC 
50 did by about a thousand RPM, which is a good thing because the other one was a really, the red line was about 6,000 RPM. So, and that was one reason the uh, manual shift was not really fun to ride because you had to shift it so early. The bike felt like it was just getting to starting to rev and you had to shift or you would hit the rev limiter. With the DCT, it does all the shifting for you. So where the rev limit is, is really irrelevant because it's not going to go there anyway. Yeah, I'm, I'm actually a big fan of DCT myself. I, I was at the launch of the VFR 1200, the very first gen, and they launched it at Sugo. So I got to ride um, a DCT all the way you know, on, on track, which was awesome. The in subsequent generations, I agree with you, it's got a lot better. Um, the, I mean, riding the latest generation Goldwing a few months ago, the only time I really felt like I wanted to use the, the manual shifting sort of version is when you're really riding hard in the canyons. And then I felt like I needed to, to manually downshift approaching a corner so that I could be in the right gear ready for the exit. But the, the, even then, changing gears is so smooth. It's such a literally a seamless transmission that that was really enjoyable. So sort of riding it, as you say, in a sort of a mix of auto, if you're just kind of cruising or, or manually shifting using the paddle shifters, it's great. I really like the DCT. I'm a big fan of it and, uh, you know, really, really enjoy it. But the, as far as the NC750 goes, um, what sort of engine does it have in it? It's just a normal uh, parallel twin. It's canted forward about 55 degrees. Okay. And so, again, that lowers the center of gravity, keeps the bike just super easy to ride. Uh, you know, double overhead cam, liquid cooled, eight valves, you know, the normal setup that you expect. And uh, it has, as I mentioned, it has three power modes, but it also has a fourth user selectable mode where you can set the uh, uh, shift points, uh, engine braking, and traction control. And uh, you can do, and each one of those kind of interact with each other. You know, they're not completely independent. So you definitely want to, if you buy the bike, work with those, that setup to, to come up with a setup that works right for you. Because I, I like a lot of engine braking. Uh, I don't mind traction control, although I don't really need the maximum. This way the bike delivers power you're not spinning up the rear wheel, you know, unless, unless there's sand or something, if there's sand or gravel or whatever, it's going to kick in no matter what, you know, setup you have on it. And the shifting, uh, anybody that's ridden like the older one, they've kind of improved on this standard mode. It, before it was, it shifted up so fast that it all, the bike almost always would feel around town, like it was going to stall. Right. You know, it's like, you would be in six, fixed gear by the time you're at 30 miles an hour on your, you know, the street that you live on, you know, in, in suburbia. And now it's not quite as aggressive about shifting up like, okay, you don't need to be quite, you know, we don't need to run it at quite, you know, one RPM over idle. Right. And so uh, that's, that's good. And also the standard mode, the shifting, if you are revving it high, it shifts faster. It just shifts slower, you know, it shifts, uh, uh, I'm sorry, it shifts slower. It's funny because it's, it's kind of counterintuitive. The faster it shifts, you know, the higher, you're quicker in a higher gear, you're actually going slower. You want the slower it shifts, the faster you go. So uh, as you, if you get on a throttle and get up in the high RPMs, it will not shift as quickly. So it'll let you stay up in the high RPM longer and, and accelerate faster. And Honda did 
they did work with the motor this year, although, you know, it's always hard to tell what the motor's doing because you are a bit removed from that with the DCT setup and, and the different power modes. But they've set it up so that it, it's, uh, you've got lower gearing, the, low, the lower gears are lower. So it just accelerates better. And, uh, you know, it's not a, a problem. It, there's a wide enough power band that they can get away with that. And uh, it does, you know, accelerates well. You know, it looks like a big scooter. And with the DCT, it kind of has the feel of a scooter, <laughs> especially around town. But if you get on the gas, it moves. And that's why I was saying as a touring bike, at 80 miles an hour, no problem. Uh, I'd get the taller windscreen. Uh, the windscreen's not adjustable. And, and it's, it's pretty good. As you get up at higher speeds, of course, you're going to want a bigger windscreen. So if I was going to go touring, I'd, I'd slap on it a, a large accessory, larger windscreen, or some maybe somebody else has one that they they offer. Now around town, as I said, the bike is super easy to ride. I mean, you just twist the throttle and you go. It's like a scooter, but you've got that 750 motor, those three lower gears at the bottom, and it just accelerates really good. And the bike hauls around town. It's not like it's not unreasonably heavy. Uh, the bike weighs in at uh, 493 pounds without the bags. So, you know, you can scoot around town and, and the bags are actually good. The side bags are great in town because they're not wide. You know, the handlebars are still the widest spot. So you can still move between traffic without jamming into things. And uh, it's just a fun, fun urban bike. Right, with that, with that 55 degree um, angle on the motor and carrying the motor sort of fairly low like that, I bet that the bike's got a real nice low center of gravity, so it feels really well balanced at slow speeds. And that, that also makes for a good urban bike too. Oh yeah, it's just incredibly easy to ride. Uh, this is a bike that somebody who was a novice had only taken the, uh, you know, the MSF courses and doesn't, isn't really that familiar with motorcycles. It'd be a great bike to start on because you don't have to worry about shifting and you don't have to keep your mind on that. You know, you can focus more on on the, the uh, technique and the paying attention to traffic and not worrying about stalling the bike or when you go to start from a, you know, a red light, you don't have to go rev it, doing all those things and looking around, we take for granted, but for a new rider that becomes a lot of things to go on. And this one, you just look around, you turn the throttle, off you go, and, and it's great. In, in the standard mode's great for that. The sport mode, I don't wanna call it jerky because it's not, but it's definitely more aggressive. And if you're riding around town in traffic, you don't need that. Uh, again, if you twist the throttle and get up in the higher revs, it, it, it responds in, in an aggressive manner, even in the standard mode. So the programming that they put into the DCT is a huge, huge improvement. I found that with the Goldwing, like I say, a few months ago, it was really good. I mean, essentially you can, you can choose a mode that sort of suits the kind of riding that you're doing at, at that particular moment. Are you able to switch modes on the fly? Yeah, no problem. Uh, you have to, you know, let the throttle off for it to take effect, but uh, that's it. And as far as like suspension and braking goes, uh, suspension is not adjustable. It's, uh, maybe spring preload in the back, of course, if you have a passenger. But you know, Honda got it right for what you're doing on the bike. The kind of the way the bike is, there's a relatively narrow range of how people are going to ride it. You know, they aren't going to ride it like a sport bike. If if they are, they bought the wrong bike. They're going to ride it more like a friendly touring bike that has sporty aspects and if you want to go wick it up a bit it's more than happy to do that and the suspension 
is well-mannered, doesn't do anything strange or doesn't surprise you in a negative way. Uh, it's not too soft, not too hard, just, just does the right thing. Uh, the breaking is uh, beginner friendly, I'll say, because it's, it's very soft early on. There's only one disc in the front and I'd kind of like to have a second disc, but uh, you know, it's only because I think I want one, but this 320 is good. And uh, if you pull on the, the lever harder, it slows down fast and the bike downshifts better. You know, we were talking a little bit about the DCT and the downshifting. I found, and this is, again, the magic of the software development. If you grab that front brake really hard, it downshifts quickly. You know, it'll, it'll downshift three times going to a turn. You know, if you go into a turn and just roll off, it won't downshift at all. You know, and so it, it knows what you want. It's like, oh, that guy's got the brakes on. I'm decelerating fast. I better shift down quickly. With the other one, the, the downshifting seemed very random. And on this, it's, it is quick. you quickly learn how it works and you like how it works. And you can downshift manually if you like, it's just a click a button. And that's, that's cool. But uh, of course, the Goldwing you rode has a different setup than the NC750X. They have different software for, for each bike. It, it works really good. The kind of the takeaway from the NC750X is that it's way better than before. I mean, they just lowering the bike just made all the difference. It got rid of a pretense that it didn't need to have an adventure ability. And it just said, hey, this is a great touring bike. Sure. This is a great city bike. This is a great commuter bike. And it does all three fantastically. I mean, just as good as anything. You know, it carries more than a Goldwing Tour. That's just mind boggling. Now, I wouldn't, I don't know that I'd want to go too up on this bike across the country. You could, I'm sure. But, you know, at 750 cc's, eh, that's kind of a little bit more of an ask. Whereas on the Goldwing, you can be too up and the bike doesn't even know. Oh, that's a second person on here. I didn't even know. <laughs> and the, the NC would, uh, I would think it would, this performance of it would suffer, you know, especially like the braking. I'd start to worry if I had that bike fully loaded, too up. I mean, you know, Honda's tested this, so it's within their standards, which are always pretty strict. But, you know, it's just, it's just going to be not, not ideal. Then you start looking at the Goldwing. Uh, but for a solo rider who wants to go touring, he should take a long look at that NC750X, especially if he doesn't need, you know, the fancy dash and stereo and all the other things that a Goldwing has. But it's just about riding. And so I want to go riding and I want to go on some side roads and I want to have a fun time and I want an easy bike to ride. If I want to go through, you know, downtown Dallas on the way and downtown Chicago, I don't feel like I'm on a boat. I feel like I'm on a perfect bike for where I'm at. And so it's, there's a lot, uh, it's, this bike's kind of, I feel like it's under the radar right. and it's one that a lot of people, if they were realistic about what they want, what they need and what will get the job done for them, you look at this bike and say, hmm. And Honda actually made that a little easier this year, but the way they lowered it, and they also changed the fairing a bit, it looks pretty cool. It, right. it definitely has right. that futuristic look. They didn't go quite so far as like the DN01 or the NM4 scooter where it looks kind of ridiculous. They, it looks cool. You know, it looks, looks aggressive, you know, it's very angular, very cool. And so you're not on it thinking, Oh, I'm on this scooter-like thing, or I'm on this kind of lesser bike than than the big guy bike. Uh, you have a bike that you know you can be proud and you're riding, and people aren't like pointing fingers and going, "Oh, look at that! Is that Batman's bike? Or what is that?" You know. And and I have to say, I do admire Honda for 
taking those stylistic chances because sometimes it works like uh the rune people you know how outrageous was that but that bike is like you know super collectible now as it as i knew it would be and it's it's awesome looking that bike is just so over the top you can't believe that a major manufacturer made it so <laughs> honda you know they have they they have some pretty smart guys running around in there but in the in this case the bike just looks good uh you want you, you know you look cool riding it that always you know people poo, poo that it's like it, it's how a bike looks it matters right you know and obviously my taste can be different from somebody else somebody else might look at the bike and not like it but i think that most people will look at the sc750x and go ah, that's pretty cool and it looks good with the bags as i said i wouldn't hesitate to ride this from la to jacksonville no problem be a, a great ride and along the way i can stop anywhere i want and park anywhere i want and uh the bike it's just easy to ride. Sounds great. Is it uh is it sensibly priced? Sensible is always <laughs> it's nine thousand dollars before you start adding any bags. So you know that's not some outrageous price, and it's like less than half of a gold wing. That's very inexpensive. Is that for that's for the DCT version? Yes, for the DCT version. And I don't have the price for the standard one, but it's about a thousand dollars, I think they get for the DCT. And I do want to I, I'm gonna have to bug Honda to get me a standard shift one because now that they've raised the rev limit to 7,000 RPM, it might be, it feels more rideable, like for a man, you know, for manual shifting. Whereas when it gets up to 7,000, it's like, okay, it's, it's, it's revving now enough that I would want to shift. The other one, motor was almost like a cruiser motor with 6,000 RPM top, you know, top rev limit. Right. It wasn't a slow rever like a cruiser. So it would quickly go up there and you'd be hitting it all the time. So, uh, like, give me the DCT. But now that's a little bit higher, I might say, hmm, this might be worth a second look. Right. I'd like to try it, but I, I still think that the DCT is going to be the superior bike just because it's so effortless and it, you know it's it, you're not riding the bike in some kind of limit, and so you, the convenience is well worth whatever small uh, performance cost there might be to have it shift on its own. And who knows, maybe it shifts smarter than you do and actually will go faster. I think on acceleration, I bet it's faster because it, it, it makes that shift more quickly than you can make it. Yeah, totally. And it optimizes where it's shifting. So that would be kind of an interesting little drag race. Well, I, I think that maybe the DCT might, might, might be the winner there, but if somebody, you know, doesn't want to spend the money or just can't quite wrap their head around that extra complexity, the standard version still out there that's very inexpensive for a dct version so i think you know kudos they're trying to trying to produce affordable bikes that people actually want sounds great yes definitely an impressive 2021 honda nc750x dct definitely an impressive upgrade from what was already a pretty cool bike and now they made it one that's really more desirable in every way without any negativity being provided into it. All right. Well, I appreciate your insight. Thank you so much. Okay. Thank you very much. Bye. All right. Okay. Bye. In this next segment, as promised, I chat with longtime friend, Neil Bailey. Neil has been a moto journalist for uh, approaching two decades now. And of course you may recall his TV show, Neil Bailey rides, or perhaps even tripping on two wheels way back when. Neil Bailey Rides can be found on YouTube, so please check it out. In the meantime, hopefully you'll find this conversation quite interesting. Neil is a self-styled philanthropic adventurer, and you'll hear the story of how he came to his true passion in life, 
how he started his Wellspring Foundation, and how motorcycles have shaped who he is today. If the mood takes you, you can contact Neil and he'd love to hear from you. If you want to feed your soul a little and donate to the Wellspring Foundation, then please check out the links in our show notes. In the meantime, please enjoy this chat I had with my friend. So you want to talk about the Father Geo story. The Father Geo story, yeah. yeah. What, I mean, tell, tell me about that from the beginning. I mean, how did that happen? I don't know. You know, Arthur, we're about the same age. Um, you know, you're in your 80s like me, right? <laughs> yeah, but I look a lot better than you do, Neil. Well, yeah. <laughs> you don't have a face like an elephant's ball sack, do you? But, um, so I think, you know, this age we look back, um, you know, the old artists, there was a style of painting pentimento where they would, the masters would paint over old paintings and the original ones would come through. And I think that that's where we're at in our lives in terms of we are living today. Sort of layering experiences. Yeah, and I think we're very much, when we met, we were younger men and we were very much driving forward. And so when I look back now, I realize one of the most pivotal moments in my life, apart from meeting you, of course. Which actually was a bit of a pivotal moment. Right, okay. Thanks, um, credit where it's due. I think one of the big moments in my life is meeting Father Geo. And for a number of reasons. So you've got to cast your mind back to 1995. And I had been traveling the world at that point for about 15 years. I did my first hitchhiking trip when I was 15. I left Scotland and went to England. By my teenage years, I was hitchhiking around Europe. And it was in France and Switzerland, Belgium, Holland. And, and then by the early 80s, I was in America. Right. Um, those trips saw me go literally America, Canada, Alaska, oh, Japan, China, Australia. And then the mid-90s rolled around. And my big ambition in the 80s had been to ride to South America. Didn't get to do it. Broke my back. Um, long so surgeries. You, so you'd never ridden to South Africa before that, huh? South America, I'm sorry. I had overlanded through Central America in the 80s, backpacking and hitchhiking. Ended up in Nicaragua during the Sandinista Contra War. That was when I ended up dealing money on the black market, but that's another story. Um, So by the mid-90s, I was recovering from this big back surgery, working in a motorcycle shop, and I convinced the guys at the shop to embark on a trip to South America. So we took four or five, we, we bought five Kawasaki 550s. I think okay. we bought two KZs and three GPZs and we put four bikes together. So I think <laughs> the most expensive one was a grand and the cheapest one was a $100. It was a frame and we cobbled these bikes together. They all got MT, Pirelli MT60 dual sport tires. They got 630 chains and sprockets, EBC pads, Spectra oil new batteries and raised the fenders and that was ready to go. So they were street bikes that you converted? Street bikes, we kind of made it, they didn't make a, without buying a BMW or a single DR or an XT, that wasn't really kind of an adventure bike at that time. And so it's 1995, I'm recovering from back surgery, I'm single, been divorced from my first wife and just pretty much wide open, you know, just bit of a wild boy. We're, I mean, we're riding bikes, we're drinking, we're chasing girls. I mean, it's, we're not living for any great high moral standard at this point, you know. And we landed in Guatemala, and six weeks later, we find ourselves in Peru. 
Right. So we rode through Guatemala, Salvador, Honduras, Nicaragua, Costa Rica, to Panama, took a ship to Colombia, Ecuador, and into Peru. And in 1995, the Pan American Highway was primarily dirt and rock and shit, with some highway in Panama and Colombia, but a lot of really rough going, no internet, traveling by paper map, you know, if you can imagine such a thing. And one day I'm in the high mountains of Peru, outside the town of Abancay, and we had been riding with a young missionary by the name of Richard, and he had crashed and then came with us again and crashed again. He hit a dog, and so one of us... <laughs> oh, man. Oh, yeah, this poor kid. Why he tried to ride with us a lot was... We were too fast for him, you know, he kept trying to keep up. So my friend Ron stayed behind to put him on a potato truck, because that's what you do in Peru in these days. If you want to get somewhere and you can't ride, we would just load him on a potato truck. And, <laughs> and meet him at the other end. Meet him at the other end. And <laughs> right. So we're sitting at the top of this probably 13,500 feet, looking down into the town of Abancay. There's this beautiful serpentine road just stretching out forever in front of us. And we see this little motorcycle coming up the road. And I thought, oh, here comes Ron. And as it got closer in view, I realized he had a white helmet, not a black helmet, which I thought, this is very odd. So we watched it coming around, and we were sitting there talking to these little Quechua Indians, and no idea what they were saying, because they don't speak Spanish, and we uh -huh. don't speak Quechua. And all of a sudden, I see this bike come around the corner, it's a dirt bike, and I see this open-faced white helmet, and this dirty glasses, and mot you know, motley beard hanging out, and an old jacket, and jeans, and... And I realized it's a gringo. And as he goes past, I said, hey, where are you headed, gringo? And he yells out, well, the anti-tambo. And it was Father Giovanni. He yells out what? Well, the anti-tambo, which I didn't know what the anti-tambo is. It's the last town before Machu Picchu. Ah, okay. So I didn't know what this meant. And, but he heard me yell, where are you heading, gringo? Because he answered with the name of the town. So throughout the course of the day, we kept crisscrossing. We would, Ron eventually arrived, we carried along, and we would pass this guy at a coffee stand. And then we'd stop for lunch and he'd pass us. Well, eventually we both stopped together, we met, we introduced, and we traveled on together. So we found out he was a Canadian priest. And what's interesting in retrospect, and I still have the letters somewhere, both Father Giovanni and I felt it was our destiny to meet. I felt something the moment I saw him. Wow. And so think about the time. I mean, you've known me as a journalist and a writer, a photographer, storyteller. At the time, I wasn't a journalist. I wasn't a photographer. I was working in bike shops and traveling. And during the next three days in Oleanti Tambo, which is this small town, it's as far as you can go by road if you want to go to Machu Picchu. There's no more road past there. So Father Giovanni takes us there and we stay at the church with Father Mike from Ipswich. And during the three days that we were together, Father Giovanni essentially downloads his life story to me. And I didn't know it was happening. He and I would go off for walks in the morning. We really bonded. He right. was very fond of us. And was he, how, how old was he? I mean, is he? He was 53 when he died in 2001, and I met him in 95, so subtract out uh, six years. He was 48. So still a relatively young man. Yes, yeah, so, seemed so, a bit older to us because we were mid-30s. Okay. So, but he was like 10 years older. So, yeah. So yeah. he was sort of late 40s. Yeah, kind of gray beard and seemed okay. wise. Okay. Because we were just like... Oh, I had this sort of, I had this sort of slightly, you know, 
Santa Claus kind of mental image of, you know, this sort of old fat roly-poly guy with a no. big white beard. So no, no, no. Okay, so so a relatively young man then. Yeah, 40s. Okay, 40s, yeah. okay. And <laughs> I sound this relatively young from where I sit where now. Where we sit now, <laughs> yeah. But he had this massive personality. Okay, interesting. I mean, wherever he went, the kids all came running. He had this big booming voice. He was just like the pig pen of excitement for the locals. You know, he was just attracting kids and people. Was he, was he a big guy? Or? No, not really. He just had a really big personality. Okay, big personality, big voice. Okay. Big voice, big personality, booming laughter. <laughs> he just created a scene where he went anywhere. No, no, a deep booming voice, my lord. <laughs> <laughs> So he told me a very intricate story about, you know, he was Italian, Battaglini was his last name, father was immigrant Italian, and he was an engineering student at college, and for his thesis he tries, he decides that he's going to make a flower or a plant, and he has this epiphany that, you know, he couldn't even make the leaf on a plant, and that to him, Truly, God must be the author of creation. So he quits okay. engineering school, goes to the seminary, becomes a priest, takes off to the poorest parts of um, Newfoundland in a place called Warbrush and has to deal with being disowned by his father because his father doesn't view him as a male if he wants to be a priest. He needs to be an engineer and be a man. So he, has to ex he basically excommunicates himself from his family and he disappears off up into the wilds of Newfoundland for many years. So there's a very interesting connection. So he is befriended by a family, um, the Kennedys. They have a young daughter called Tina. And Tina's 11 when he comes to the village, but we'll pause that for a moment. So eventually he leaves Warbrush and goes to Peru and he spends his life in Peru amongst the poorest people in a little village called Karumas. And being an engineer, he embarks a lot of, upon a lot of projects. I mean, he put irrigation systems, he builds greenhouses. He's not just bringing God to the, to the locals. He's bringing supplies, his abilities. Some infrastructure. Yes, and he travels from village to village on an XL185 Honda. Okay. So that's we met him riding his little XL185 Honda. And he was in between villages when we met him. So I leave him really with this whole story of his life. You right. know, how he became a priest, the whole thing in Warbrush. He's a little bit more involved. I don't want to take three hours to tell his life story today. And I didn't know, but it's almost like he handed me a, a briefcase and said, here's my story, take it with you. So remember, I'm not a professional storyteller at this point. Right. And I leave there very changed. Um, I left Peru, went back to Panama. I had a torrid love affair, torrid love affair with a raven-haired beauty in Panama City on the way there. <laughs> right, of course you did. Of course you did. Yeah. So I well, went why back. wouldn't you? Yeah. As you do, right? Right. So anyway, I well, went you, back. You are a romantic, as you say. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Brace yourself, pet. <laughs> so I go back to see the lovely Miss Lourdes Vagar in Panama City for a week, and I get back to America, and I'm changed without knowing it. And I'm working on the retail floor of the motorcycle shop that I'm in, and a gentleman walks in and says, 
hey, Neil, I just spent $5,000. I said, what have you been up to? I just spent $5,000 buying chrome for my Harley up the road. And I had a Tourette's moment, which <laughs> Rice spat out, well, you're a fucking idiot. <laughs> and I realized that you can't say that to a customer when you're working retail. Right. It's not, it's not quite the right vernacular. <laughs> right. So anyway, I, I tried to recover by making a bit of a joke of it, but I realized something was not right. So I quit my job. And I asked my landlady if she would look after my spaniel and I shoved all my stuff in a storage shed or at my buddy's place. And I didn't realize this at the time. I took $5,000 with me and I took off to Europe. And during the next year, I, bought a, I convinced my mother to loan me my grandmother's funeral money because I didn't want to use my dollars. So it was a bit of deft negotiation with the old bird to convince her that Granny wasn't going to pop her clogs before I got back. <laughs> right. Because, you know, my mother was pretty poor and she had diligently saved all this money to bury my grandmother, who she was already about 100 at this point, with little chance of dying, I felt. <laughs> right. <laughs> so it just seemed natural that I would use the funeral money, right? Right. So yeah. anyway, I negotiated... She wasn't going to need that for a while. No. So I negotiated okay. the funeral money out of my mother to buy the KLR, kept my $5,000, and took off to Europe. And over the next five months, I think I rode 23 countries, 17,500 miles to the four corners of Europe, all the extremities of Europe, wow. on the $5,000. And of course, what I realized at the time is it, this was my middle finger to this gentleman who had spent $5,000 bolting chrome on his Harley. Right. It was almost like I was just being militant about, look what you could do with $5,000. Right. right. So, but during that time, I wrote a lot of journaling, took a lot of pictures. And finally, I get to southern Spain, and I'm standing there looking at the lights of Tangiers, and you could smell Africa at night. Oh, really? If you're on just along the coast of Gibraltar, you're so close to Africa, you can see the lights, and you can smell this kind of, if the wind's in the right direction, it's kind of interesting. And so for a, three... Is it like a bad smell or no, a good smell? No, no, kind of, I don't know, just musty or curry or something. It was just some sense... Sort of you, a spicy... yeah. Almost sort of African spices kind of thing. So I'm kind of getting this cerebral sense of Africa. And I, I had about 60 grand in the bank at home from the sale of my house. And I had this choice. Do I continue on to Africa and blow through all my money? Or do I go back to America and get an education and figure out how somebody can pay me to travel the world? Because I'd had this revelation in southern Turkey one day. I was riding down from Cappadocia to the Mediterranean. And suddenly, in this moment, I visualized speaking in my helmet to an audience of people that could see what I was seeing. Because it was so amazing. Right. This is before GoPros and satellite. and So uh, for some reason, I had this idea that I wanted to get paid to travel the world and tell stories. Again, uneducated. Left school at 15. <laughs> I think I had a GED that one of my wives or girlfriends would maybe go get because apparently you're supposed to have an education in this country, right? So, <laughs> you know, I had something. So, but I decided I would go because I needed to learn how to work computers because computers were coming. It was 1996. Right. I didn't know how to turn a computer on. So instead of going to Africa, I made well, a I decision. Well, I think computers had come along a little bit before They had, that, but, but okay, they were beginning know. to come into our everyday life. I mean, okay. the shop that I worked didn't have a computer. Right. We were still doing everything by paper. Okay. And a cash register. We weren't using computers at the motorcycle shop yet. The dealerships were. So okay. I felt like 
if I wanted to go work at the dealership, I needed to learn how to use a computer. Right. So I went back to America to do that. And, I, uh, and now, with hindsight, looking back, this was all this influence I felt from Father Geo to become a storyteller, to make some meaning out of my travels. Also, before I went, I'd quit drinking. So by the time I got to Europe, I was sober, off, you know, don't smoke, don't drink, don't do drugs. I mean, you know, I wasn't running off to church or anything, but I mean, I, that's not my gig, but it's fine if it is. But I just was trying to, I guess, lead a better life than running around on bikes, just getting drunk and making money and hanging out. Right. So this was all, I think, this influence from Father Giovanni. Interesting. But that then led to your adventures in Peru. Yeah, so I came back and quite quickly um, after coming back, I enrolled in school. Came back to America? Yes, to Florida where I had been left some bikes and my dog and different things. Right, okay. Actually, my landlady repossessed my dog. I had a lovely old spaniel. It's interesting that Charlie's here, your spaniel. So she was just getting old and she'd been so integrated with my landlady and her dog, I didn't want to move her at that point. Right, right. And um, so that was when I met my kid's mother, started the relationship, started the family. And in the early years that I was with the kid's mother, I was writing letters back and forth to Father Giovanni. We were now pen pals. Ah, okay. And I was trying to convince her we should move to Peru. But the kids, you know, we were starting a family and it wasn't a good idea. Right. And somewhere in the midst of all of this, you know, wife, children, started my career, met you indeed. Right. I already now was onto the press circuit. Right. I didn't realize the letters weren't coming from Father Geo. I just got so busy. Right. That I kind of forgot about it. Okay. Forgot about the idea of going to Peru, forgot about the idea of writing to Geo. You're just very busy with young children and the career. Sure. That career then, as you know, was taking us all over the world. Right. We were suddenly flying off to all these destinations and um, testing all these bikes, you know. Um, and then around 2004, 2005, I get one of these letters that people used to send where it was like a... a reply all on an email. It was a letter that went to everybody. Right, okay. There was a group of people, they printed out the same letter and everybody got it. And it was about, you know, it's now been four years since Father Gio died. I was like, he died? I had no idea he did. And he'd passed away in 2001. Wow. So what had happened? That's very young, I mean. Yeah, he was 53. Wow, I wonder what he died from. Well, um, it wasn't good, so. The town of Moquegua is where the orphanage is that I now support, Hogar Belen. Okay. So Geo lived up the mountains in Kurumas. He had to cross a 13,500 foot pass and down into a very remote valley. I tried to get there a couple of times and didn't get there, and I did finally get there a few years ago. Well, Geo was running supplies back and forward from Moquegua to Kurumas. In, on, on his 185? No, he actually was in a truck. Okay. He, the, I guess the diocese had a pickup truck by this point. Okay. The crazy part about it is you've talked a lot about coincidence and synchronicity in the time that we spent today. For some reason, he had nobody in the truck with him. He was alone. And if you've ever been to Peru, nobody travels in a truck alone. They've always got hitchhikers or friends or people. Okay. As soon as the truck's making a journey, everybody's in it. 
Nobody travels alone. They, they right, always because they all need to go somewhere, and if somebody's going, it's like, can we hitch a ride? Gio would always have had people in the truck, and okay. he was on his way back up the hill to Karumas, and a truck came around the corner. It's a very dangerous road. We ride on our tour, and a truck came around the corner on the wrong side of the road, semi-truck, and went right over the top of him. Oh, my God. So he was dead in an instant. Oh, my God. And that was in 2001. Well, I didn't find that out until about 2004, 2005. And the letter was from his sister. Oh. So I called his sister, Maria Fitzgerald. And this is one of those weird things. We were talking and I said, we really got on well on the phone. I said, look, I hope you don't mind, but I'm going to make a movie about your brother's life one day. <laughs> right. Because I'm a movie maker, right? I'm a, <laughs> I'm a fucking motorcycle journalist, you know. <laughs> right. <laughs> what do I, you know. And I said, and I don't know why I said that to her. She said, no, that's perfectly fine. That's okay. I, I, it's all right with that. I mean, why I would say that, I have no idea. So we create a friendship. And I end up getting divorced from the kid's mother and um, yeah, go through some, some turmoil after that. And so by 2008, Maria and I were in Hogar Belen in Peru doing a medical mission because she was still supporting Gio's kids. Right. And she encouraged me to join her on a trip. I'd always wanted to go, so we went together to do this medical mission. And that was when I started Wellspring International Outreach, my foundation. Because I came back from Peru with this, this overwhelming drive and desire that I had to do something about the poverty. I had to do something to help these kids. And that was when I started Wellspring. The, after that. the kids specifically in that village, though? Yes, there was about 50, 60 kids on the farm. So think back to Father Gio. He was running supplies during the earthquake right. that flattened Makega. Well, it also flattened the orphanage. Oh, so okay. all the kids had to be evacuated off out of the orphanage onto this farm. Well, they're still on the farm in 2008, right. living in temporary accommodation. These kids are living in wooden huts with no heaters, and no air conditioning, and right. cement floors. And, and, what, and what's the climate like there? Well, it can be very cold. It's desert. It's the Atacama Desert. It's down south towards the Chilean border, so it can be bitterly cold at night, and it can be excruciatingly hot in the summer. And is it at elevation? or is it No, it's fairly low, probably four or 5,000 feet above sea level, comparative to the Andes. Uh, comparative? I mean, still, four or 5,000 feet. A little bit feet. of elevation. Yeah. Right, sure. Yeah. Okay. And the, you have to cross a river to get onto the farm. So when the river rises, the kids are stuck. They can't get to school. Right. So that was 2008. I came back and started And, and where do the kids come from? I mean, they're just all they're just, just orphan dropped off on the doorstep. I mean, abandoned. They just find them on the city dump. They get dropped on the doorstep. They come out of the police system. I mean, they just hand them over kids. Wow. So Sister Loretta was running it at the time. She did 46 years down in that desert. And at times they had over 300 children. Wow. And literally thousands. 300? At a time. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And when we got and ra to ranging from babies, from to, babies 18. to 18. Mm -hmm. Okay. Wow. Yeah. And just this hand to mouth existence. They grow vegetables. They have cows. They get clothes donations. I mean, they're just literally hand to mouth constantly. How on earth do you support 300 kids? Yeah. I think 350 might have been the maximum they had. She started with one. She went down there like 46, what would be 50 odd years ago now, and you know, the sisters had wow. a house. 
And they woke up, woke up one morning with a baby in a bassinet at the doorstep. Someone left a note and said, please take care of the baby. They took the baby and then another one came, then another one came. So Loretta wow. probably raised thousands of children. Oh, and they all called her mother, kids. Madre. Unbelievable system, you know. So wow. I saw this and I'm like, and then of course I fell in love with Kathleen, the little, the little handicapped girl. Oh. Um, and how old was she at that time? She was just a little tiddler. She could barely walk at that time. She would fall over. They had a little baseball helmet on her because she kept falling over and smashing her head. So she was like two or three or something. Yeah, a little bit older maybe. And she was, her caregiver was Sister Giovanna. And it was funny, you know, these moments you have in your life. So Kathleen fell over and started crying. And I looked over and she had blood coming down the side of her face. She had tears and snot out of her nose. Aww. And I felt really weird, but I took this picture of her that we used for a long time as our kind of publicity shot for Wellspring. And I just remember turning around when I looked at that photo and said, that photo is going to raise a million dollars. These <laughs> right. weird moments that you come sure. back to. Like why did I say that? In time, yeah. mm -hmm. right. So I fell in love with Giovanna and uh, Kathleen that day. It was funny because Giovanna and Kathleen had been away. They weren't at the farm the whole week we were doing the medical mission. And I had gone to the orphanage on the farm that morning, and I remember coming out of the dining room, and there was this music playing. They always had the radio playing in the dining room. And there was something really weird about the feeling, and I thought the light was different, the feeling was different. I remember, if I look back in my photo files now, you could see a whole block of photographs I shot outside that dining room door trying to capture this, because I thought it was something to do with the light. And what it was, it was the day that Giovanna and Kathleen came back. And it was almost like I felt them before they got there. Because the minute they got there, I was so bonded and attached to them. And I think if I hadn't bonded with Kathleen the way I did, I don't think I would have gone through what I've gone through to keep getting back to them, if that makes sense. Wow. So that was, that was why I came back and fought to create Wellspring and, and do everything we've done. And so that's how... Neil Bailey Rides essentially got started. I mean, in as much as coming up with the idea of riding down to Peru with, and then donating the proceeds of the, the people who pay to do that. Yeah, I think the direction of that- Sort of guided tours kind of thing to, to the orphanage. Yeah, what, what happened at the time was by 2005, I was, I had created a travel show called Trippin' on Two Wheels with Dennis Gage. Sure, I remember that. And tripping, tripping, on, tripping two on two wheels, yeah. And it was a very fun, light-hearted travel show with Dennis, myself, and his son. And I really enjoyed it. Um, I have the most massive respect for Dennis Gage as a, one of the most intelligent, hardworking, honest, down-to-earth humans you ever met. He is just, he's flawless as a human. I mean, he's just such mm. a great human and his son Sam is amazing his team are just yeah some of the best work I've ever had right you know um, sure. kind of like when you me and Jeffers were doing the early days of Rob <laughs> Report no seriously that really great creative energy stuff right sure know. sure so we create Trippin' on Two Wheels Dennis it took me it took me about nine months to convince him to do it because he kept saying oh no 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 Neil we'll never make any money well he was right about that but <laughs> You know me, I don't give a shit about making money, so I didn't care. I just wanted to do a travel show. Right. And so in 05, we went to Scotland, did our first one, and we, we ended up traveling around the world making Triple on Two Wheels. 
Well, at the same time, I started Wellsprings, and I had these two big focuses going in my life. One was raising money for the kids, and one was tripping on two wheels. Right. And I was, re and I, I came to this crescendo right here at Bailey Towers on that piece of faux woodwork by the front door. Right. <laughs> it's the spring of '09, and I was absolutely just completely frustrated. I realized that if I continued to fundraise at the current level, I was going to be 189 years of age before I got an orphanage built. Right. And as much as I loved doing the TV show with Dennis and Sam and everything about it, it just wasn't fulfilling my soul. I wanted something deeper. Right. I wanted more. Right. It was great. We were skipping around the world, staying in nice hotels, riding bikes, you know. I was picking up girls and crashing bikes and being the clown and, you know, part-time philosopher, part-time clown. It was right. great, but it wasn't... And it wasn't making enough money that you could donate it to the orphanage. Yes, there was no money on the show and, it, you know, it, it was a great experience. So suddenly I have this epiphany standing right here. Right. Why don't I merge the two together? Why don't I make these round-the-world travel pieces benefit... Right. Benefit the orphans. And that's how the concept for Neil Bailey Rides developed. Understand that I need to merge these two ideas together. To take charity and take motorcycle riding and traveling, put them together. And that was what Neil Bailey Rides was. Let's, you know, get on our motorcycles, have an adventure, see the world, and give something back. It just all just made absolute perfect sense. Right. It takes everything full circle, really. Yeah. Father Geo, my upbringing, raising money for kids as youngsters, the charity work I did as a teenager in London, my world travels, my journalism, my TV experience, all of everything that I've got in my life comes together in this idea okay. um, that I needed to do Neil Bailey Rides. And it, it, just seemed, it just seemed like the perfect thing to do. Right, right. And so, how many, how many trips do, have you taken down to Peru? Well, so that was 2009, and to, as of today, it's taken, I've done 11 trips with stuff. But wow. the bigger thing was how to get the show done. Right. And the interesting part of it is, is this is where you come in um, with your story, because you are tied to my father Gio's story and the success of the show. So at this because time, because we published your the father Gio story yeah. in Ultimate Motorcycling, what in about two thousand and nine or ten or something? I think it was the spring. It was either spring of ten or the spring of eleven. Okay. So what happened was I, I had this idea, and um, I had a young roommate at the time I'd taken in. He was bit of a wayward kid and I'd got him in here and got him cleaned up and got him on on the road right. and I was standing on the thing and he was in in his room I said fuck this shit I said you know what I'm just gonna put my adventure gear on shove a camera in my pocket grab a handful of money I'm going to Peru I'm gonna go map I'm gonna ride around Peru I'm gonna write a magazine story about it I'm gonna walk into the head of Speed's office because I was the motorcycle editor for Speed TV at that time Right. And my show, Tripping on Two Wheels, was on speed, the major network. Okay. And I'm going to put this magazine article on this table. I'm going to say, we need to make this TV show. And if you don't want to do it, 
why don't you give me the information to go talk to National Geographic? We need to do this show. Right. And he said, hey, I'll go with you. Okay. And I said, hey, great. And then a couple of other friends said they'll go with me. So we flew to Peru. We met my dear, dear friend, Flavio Salvetti. Flavio had just had a major, the banks had just ripped him off. He was on the bones of his ass. He'd just lost all his money. And we were the first trip that right. he took to try and recapture some money. So we started this amazing... So he had a touring company? Yeah, we, he had a bunch of old XR600s. Okay. So we spent two weeks. I needed to map the country to make a show. I couldn't run the risk of taking a TV crew there not knowing the distances between hotels. <laughs> right. Or where the gas stations are. Or, right, because you can look or, at a map and go, that's 100 miles. And in American terms, people think in, they don't think in miles, they think in hours. But when you're right. in a developing world, it's, it's hours or days, not... Right. It could take days to go 100 miles. Right. And presumably so, a lot of the roads aren't necessarily, you know, concrete or asphalt. No, or no. It's still, still, like still sort a, of fire was, roads. And, yeah, there was still a chunk of dirt roads in, in at that time. Sure. So Flavio, Brandon, myself, and a couple of friends, um, we embark on this two-week journey around Peru, essentially on a mapping thing from Lima. Right. I wanted to see the distances and made all my notes. Just sort of pre-running the whole thing. Pre-run the whole thing. Ended up at Hogai Balan. We donated a bunch of money, you know, created a bunch of media. Um, Huberstank, uh, the rock group, gave me one of the songs that they'd written. Oh, right. Okay. I, I took them on a trip to Europe and they wrote a song about it. They gave me the song. I used it for my charity video. So all of this stuff was going on. You and I were bumping into each other all around the world. Right. And I came back to America bumped into Matthew Miles at Daytona, told him about the Peru trip, and he goes, we need to run this in Cycle World. Right. This is a great story. And I thought, this is fantastic. I will have the biggest magazine in America running my story. I'm going to take this magazine into the, um, the, you know, the head of speed and say, we need to make this TV show. Well, the good part about it is David Edwards held me up for six months and then pitted me on the story. Right. You know, the editor of Cycle World. Yeah, which was great because when he got fired, he called me for advice on how to be a freelancer. <laughs> <laughs> I think how they, life comes full circle. I think they call it irony, don't they? <laughs> right. So I find myself in the fall of that year without a major magazine to pick up the story. Right. So enter Arthur Colwell's. So we go to Puerto Mayo. There's you, me, and Jeff as are testing the S1000RR. Right. We sit down at dinner. I tell you all about Peru. You say, this is a wonderful story. I say, you know, what do you think about running this story? And you're like, well, you know, we crunch for space and these aren't new bikes and this isn't what we're doing right now. And right. You know, times were tough in the motorcycle industry. I mean, right. we were struggling to keep a staff paid, run a magazine. Right, same You were one of the few people doing this coffee table magazine. Right. So we leave Portugal. I'm thinking, okay, that's ultimate motorcycling out of the equation. And I <laughs> sent you the famous email. Right. And I said in the email, thanks for the consideration, I just have to ask you a question. Could you live with yourself if you didn't run the story? Right, <laughs> <God>. bastard. <laughs> so anyway, you gave, me, you gave me eight pages. Right, so I was like, oh, shit. All right. right. So, All right, we'll make it a feature. <laughs> yeah, which it was. And what was very cool about that feature Well, was, it was really sort of either give you six lines or all eight pages. Yeah, so I got the and eight I pages. And I tossed a coin. <laughs> 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 and what was really interesting was I wrote the travel story and your editorial staff, Don and Kelly, said, hey, that's just a travel story. We want to hear about the priest. Right. Now, what was really cool for me was 
it was like a dual purpose tie. I wrote the story 80% travel, 20% message. They didn't like it. And Kelly wanted 80% message, 20% travel, which was bingo. Right. right. It was what I really wanted, yeah. but I was trying to hide what I was doing. So right. Kelly's intuitiveness, I remember her calling me. Right. I mean, my initial thought was, fuck, I've got to rewrite it, you know? I've only got five <laughs> days. Right. You know. But human interest is always so much more interesting than just yeah. a, a narrative of, you know, just a chronology, like you say. Well, we went to this place and we went to that place, yeah. and here we stopped for something to eat, and then we filled up with gas. I mean, so like, I, re okay. I so I rewrote the I rewrote it and the very first story that I'd ever written um, was about traveling in India, actually doing a philanthropic adventure. I was riding across India raising money for cancer victims. It was the very first thing I ever did for a magazine, and Mark Tuttle had run it in Rider magazine. Oh, okay. And I had a very very dear friend called Binny Williams. And she was a writer, so I'd never written anything professionally. So I wrote my story for Ryder. I take it to Binnie Williams. I'm all, you know, bright-eyed and bushy-tailed with my first <laughs> right. story. And I think she, this might be my best work. <laughs> and I hand it over, and she reads it. And she looks at me, and she was this big, heavy-set Jewish lady from Chicago who did not mince her words. And she turns around and goes, it's shit, rewrite it. <laughs> <laughs> so this is my first glowing intro to journalism. <laughs> Which I, so I was a little bit, you know, <laughs> so anyway, she was kind enough to tell me how to rewrite it. Okay. And I rewrote it. And Mark Tuttle published it. And I won't get into that. I think it's because he was trying to sell ads to Enfield, but he told me it was a good story. So he ran it. <laughs> so what happened was I was up against the wall with your deadline for this Father Giovanni story. And I was struggling because I'd kind of got this movie script idea about Father Geo that I was using at the beginning of the story. Right. And I panicked the day before and called Binny and said, Binny, could you fix this story for me? And she just changed some things around and made some edits and put it together. Right. And then I, she said, do this, do this. So I sent it back to her and said, what do you think? And she called me over and said, this is brilliant. And I knew when she said this is brilliant, she meant it because <laughs> she had said to me 10 years previously, this is shit, rewrite it. So I trusted right. her judgment. And right. then I remember Kelly and Don calling me when they read the story, just over the moon. You right, know? Yeah. It just, it, yeah, I remember it well. So it was great. It was just what we wanted. It was, had that sort of human interest sort of depth to it and yeah. sort of crazy right across the world, some exotic location and Father bumping Gio into and this charismatic guy and the kids and what it all led to. Yeah, interesting. So the magazine comes out in print and right at that time, I get connected to a, an Emmy award-winning TV producer who reads this story about me in a magazine about just my crazy life, not necessarily part of what I'm doing in Peru. And she says, I need to get together with you. I think we should do some TV together. So I said, can I come and visit? And she said, yes. And I said, look, I've got an idea. And I gave her that copy of Ultimate Motorcycling. Right. I said, you need to read this story before we have our meeting. Right. And she read the story and called me immediately. Go, yes, let's go. We went to dinner. We talked about the Ultimate Motorcycling piece. We talked about Geo. And that was how we went into business to do Neil Bailey Rides. So if you hadn't ran that story. Right. It's funny how, you know, the whole concept of, you know, a butterfly flaps its wings and somewhere around the world you know, something else happens. And it's just mm. like one little thing 
just triggers something else and all that time ago that yeah so if richard hadn't crashed the bike in peru in 1995 i wouldn't have been sitting on the mountain when geo came past right if he hadn't taken my address his sister would have never sent me the letter if i hadn't started the if i hadn't if i decided to go to africa and hadn't come back to become a journalist i wouldn't have met you if i hadn't met you i wouldn't have done the magazine story if i hadn't done the magazine story she might not wanted to right embark right. on the show idea right well, I remember, I remember the, so Neil Bailey Rides then aired, I, but it was on like Discovery, wasn't it? Or It was on the Speed Channel. It was on Speed Channel, okay. Mm-hmm. So. And that had, and, but that was like several episodes. Yes. Um, Seven or eight episodes. So then? I'd got the magazine story, I'd got my producer, right. and I needed to go make a pilot. Okay. So I decided that Peter Duval and Roy Olimuller, the heads of BMW, were going to be in Yosemite for the GS 1200 press launch. Right. And I had made this video with Hoobastank's music. I had your magazine story. So I had my whole pitch together that I needed them to fund me to go and make this pilot. Right. And I was already talking privately to Roy Olimuller because right. Roy Olimuller is, I have so much love, respect, and admiration for that yeah, man. Yeah, he's he a great always man. supported my projects. Great man. He, yeah. knew, he knew about Peru when I was doing the Hondas, he couldn't help me physically because they weren't BMWs, but he was helping me emotionally. So he helped me get this meeting with Peter Duval to talk about doing the pilot. So the greatest part about that was, was I crashed the the bike, snapped my collarbone, smashed my leg into the cylinder head, had to ride out in a snowstorm, (laughs) get back to the hotel with a broken collarbone and a dinged up leg, virtually frostbitten from riding through the snow, Uh, go to Uncle Roy and say, hey, do you have any pain pills? uh, Jamie Elvidge brings me a garbage bag full of ice. I take a couple of, (laughs) I take a couple of, uh, what are they called, Vicodins, down a couple of double whiskeys for the pain because I have a snapped collarbone. And I go off and I make a presentation to Peter DeVal. I haven't got a clue what I said. (laughs) I have no recollection. (laughs) But it obviously went well. It obviously went well because they... they Perhaps you're at your best when you're drugged and drunk. With a broken collarbone. With a broken collarbone, okay. So, of course, I have to come back to my producer now in a sling. Well, uh, yeah, I kind of messed up, you know. (laughs) Here I am, this heroic adventure traveler. I've just kind of broken my collarbone, you know. All right. So she she sort of, it doesn't worry too much. And then I set up... um, I set up going down to Peru and filming the pilot. And okay. I used BMW Performance Center instructors because I was training down there. Right. Took a camera crew I'd been working with. Um, we probably had to raise about $100,000 in equipment, money, and in-kind donations and sponsorship. Right. So we recreated another ride in Peru to create the pilot. Right. And then we had to use the pilot to shop the show. So that took 18 months of my life. We had 13 network rejections. Every single major network in America rejected it. And what would happen is you get in the ring, you show the pilot, somebody at National Geographic, Discovery, OLN, Outdoor Network, all of these networks. We love it. This is great. Let's have a meeting. They take it to the next person. They love it. They love it. They love it. They love it. And it gets all the way to the top of the chain and they would kick it back out. And this process would take six months, six weeks to two months sometimes. Right, right. And it was the same story over and again. It's too soft. It's too fluffy. If this was in America, it's because the kids, you know, not to be disrespectful, but 
there's not a huge appetite for dirty brown kids in a third world country right. on American television. This is you're competing with Honey Boo Boo, the Kardashians, Duck right. Dysentery or whatever it was called. You know, <laughs> right. you've got all this shite on television, and you're trying to bring something with some meaning. Shot right. down, shot down, shot down. So I was completely on the bones of my ass. Now I've got you know three, four years into this. I've got multiple trips to Peru. Right. All this work, all this energy, all this effort. And right. I was at Barber, funnily enough, and just Barber so Motorsports Barber Park. Motorsports Park, the Barber Museum. Right. And a very dear friend of mine, Will Guyan. I'm sure you remember Will Guyan. Okay. He suddenly we bump into Mr. Barber. Will starts telling Mr. Barber all about my work in Peru. And then the next thing I'm in this like confessional session with with Mr. Barber. Will's disappeared and Mr. Barber and I are wandering around. And I'm just crying the blues about all this work and I can't get the job done. And Mr. Barber turns around and he puts his hands on my shoulders and he looks me right in the eyes. He goes, you got this, go home, you're gonna get it, go do it. Don't quit, stay on it. Wow, okay. Get in my car, drive home to Charlotte. And what had happened was, was Hunter Nickel was the head of speed and he hated me and Dennis. He was an ex-military guy and knew how I am. Right. So I was just this rabble rouser at speed. He wanted everybody at their desks working diligently and I'm just running around trying to have a good time because it's, it's a motorsports network. Heaven forbid everyone should enjoy themselves, right? Right. So he hated tripping. He hated the motorcycle department. He hated me. And he had blocked two or three attempts at getting the show done on speed with these various people. Oh. And so I go home from this uplifting experience with Mr. Barber and I just get this news. Hunter Nickel had got fired. They were cannibalizing the network and he was gone. Oh. <laughs> so I go rocking into the all company breakfast. There's a new head of speed, a guy called Scott Ackerson, who's there to kind of sink the ship essentially because they were getting ready to shut speed down. This was in the, the final embers of the Speed Network's days. I was the last new show they commissioned. Wow. And I but make it, my pitch to Scott Ackerson, and he said, that's a story that needs to be told. And Neil Bailey Rides ended up on Speed. Oh, good so we for were him. absolutely out of options. Wow, that's amazing. You know, amazing. what is it, the American football thing, the Hail Mary or something? The Hail Mary throw, yeah. This was the, this was the absolute dying embers of the game. And wow. this... One of my, uh, Mark Mitchell, I think it was, I worked with at Speed, had said, look, it's the old company lunch tomorrow. Get in front of Ackerson and, and make a pitch. You've got to, this is your last chance. Wow. And that's how Neil Bailey Rides got on Speed TV. So. Wow, that's <laughs> <Yeah>. awesome. <laughs> what a crazy story. Yeah, yeah. But I remember, I remember seeing it on TV. It was, a, it was a really good show. I mean, it was great. It was, yeah. it was good and you know, it had the, sort of the heartwarming end. So, I think essentially, I think there was, if, if tripping on two wheels didn't go deep enough, I think the thing that I don't like about Neil Bailey Rides was it was too reality. Um, my partner who edited it culled the parts of it to make it a certain way because we were in a reality TV world at that time. Right. And right. if we'd really done it as the training, because I train these guys really right, hard. Yep. They train on dirt that. bikes, they train at the performance center. I think if we'd really, in hindsight, I mean, I wish we'd done it my way, 
I understand what she was doing. She needed to make it palatable to this reality-driven world. It, it couldn't be what it really needed to be, if that makes sense. There had to be, there was drama. We drove through a storm, Dr. Laura crashed and broke her foot. Right. One of the guys broke down crying, another one got sick. I mean, there was a storm. I mean, you know, there was a lot of shit. Right, yeah, yeah, no, it had its fair share of drama, I remember that. Right, but that drama was not manufactured, but she no. she played up to that, but I think she had to. Okay. So, because I think that's what, that's what the world of television was needing at that time. Right, right, right. So ultimately, that then triggered you to, to do more of these guided tours down to Peru and helping to support the orphanage, yeah, which so you, you still know, do to this day. We do. Well, obviously with COVID, the last two years, I've not been in Peru. Um, right. So yeah, during that time, we expanded out to working in a township in South Africa. We've right. adopted a small project in Kenya. We've done everything from bridges to kitchens to bathrooms and support and healthcare for the kids in Peru. So we have not stopped. The last two years, I have got to say, we have not raised a lot of money and we have not been very active because you know, you can't ask people who right. are struggling with COVID and losing their jobs and losing loved ones and all the stuff that we've had the last few years. Hey, you know, let's throw in for a bunch of kids on the other side of the world. Right, right. But I think as the world begins to move forward, we'll be, you know, everything's a little parked at the moment, but, but I've been doing it for 13 years. I'm not stressed that we won't come back to it. Right. Do you hear from them anymore? Constantly, or? yeah, yeah. I'm probably one of the few retrobates that you know that constantly has nuns calling him. <laughs> Actually, I've got a connection to a few myself, but yeah, yeah. okay. And you know what? I, I work with Sister Giovanna in Kenya. Um, she's a suspect Peru, and I work with uh, Fabiola Josefina in Peru. Um, I think my little nuns are the most amazing human beings I interact with on a daily basis. They absolutely live around me with no judgment. <laughs> and if you think of the life of the terrible life I've had compared to the life of a nun. <laughs> right. If anybody needs judged, it's me. Right? <laughs> right. <laughs> if you could ever wash the stains out of my soul, right. good luck with that one. Right? Right. And so how many kids do they have now? Are they still up to about um, 300? No, oh, good Lord, no. They were down to 50 or 60 back in 08. I think Fabiola's got about 25 at the moment. Okay. It's on a much reduced basis. So at least that's a little bit more manageable in terms yeah, of... Yeah, but you know, they're still working seven days a week. I mean, the right. water goes out, the electric goes out, you know, the, the river came and washed our bridge away, the river came again and, and completely filled their fields up with boulders. I mean, we had to get earth-moving equipment in there. I mean, they're always facing a challenge. Right. It's a harsh yeah. environment, you know. Sure. COVID's come, they've had to get locked on the farm. Right, right. So... Okay, so... I mean, I, I think that's a, that's a great story. I, I have to say, I really admire what you've done. Oh, thank and, you. Yeah, I mean, it's not a, enough. I mean, we're, well, we need to do more. Well, it's a whole lot more than most, just about everybody does, in, especially me. But, but, uh, what, but what I do is very predicated on the small and generous actions of a lot of people. Okay. I would not be able to do this if it wasn't for the very selfless acts that other people do. I get to be right. the figurehead. I'm Neil Bailey of Neil Bailey Rides. I'm the president of Wellspring. But I wouldn't be here if it wasn't for the unseen works of the nuns and the volunteers and the people that put on all these long hours that don't do it for any glory, right. you know. So right. I kind of get all the adoration if if that's the right situation. Or I get the adoration? Oh, you do a charity. Well, no, it's <laughs> not. You know, I mean... 
All right, yeah, okay. Praise um, or whatever you want to call it, but it's not really me, it's this group of people. Yeah, there's a whole unseen machine in the background. Yeah, I just happen to be the, you know. The, you happen to be the uh, the organ grinder. Yeah. Right. Because um, I'm so useless if, at anything else but telling stories, right? Right. So if by chance anyone listening to this decides that they'd like to send five bucks or 50 bucks or 500 bucks to, yeah. to Wellspring to help a few kids that really do desperately need it, who would they, who would they contact? You can... Contact me always. I mean, I'm so easy to find. N-E-A-L-E-B-A-Y-L-Y. I'm like Tigger. I'm the only one on the internet. So a Google search will find me. Find me, message me. There's a donation site at Wellspring's website. And what's that address? Wellspring.org? That's wellspring-outreach.org. Wellspring-outreach.org. And, and there's an ability to go and donate. Yeah, there. donation page. You just donate donation page. straight okay. through PayPal. That's great. Yeah. yeah. And if anyone's got any stories that they want to tell you or feedback that they want to give you, contact you at Neil, Neil Bailey. Yeah, Neil Bailey at Yahoo, you know, through Instagram, Facebook. I'm super easy to find. I mean, people message me all the time. I mean, it's okay. really great. It's one of the great parts about what I do is I get lots of messages. Sorry, my phone's dinging. If I'd been a good podcast, I'd have turned that off. Okay. It's just the landlord, the rent's due. Okay. Well, thanks. I greatly appreciate it. And let's... Uh, Let's see if, uh, if anyone sends you some money. I think it's, well, a, it's a great cause. So, you know, as I said, I'm just going to finish up a little bit. So there is something really, really wild and interesting happening. Um, I reconnected with an old friend that found me in the Middle East in the spring. Okay. And I'm not going to say too much about it because this will create something for you to come back to. So uh, Let's just say it's an old friend from the days in England. It's tied to my Laverda, my old motorcycle, my Laverda project, and the Middle East, and uh, more to do with uh, Neil Bailey rides, orphanages, and world travel. So I'll just tease you with that. How about that? Okay. All right. Sounds good. <laughs>